Good morning, everyone. Thank you, uh, Daniel. Great to have you with us this morning. Great to uh, be back with you. Uh, Jason, Mike, uh, Dwayne, Dreyer, and uh, Rob Vilstra uh, made a trip to Southeast Asia this week. And while two of our group got back on time, Jason and I were about 12 or 13 hours late, got back in yesterday morning. But uh, the good news is that I am here. I slept well. My body doesn't know what time of day it is. Um, I think I, my body thinks it's 10 o'clock at night, but don't worry, I'll get you out before then, I assure you of that. Um, great to have you with us as we continue our series entitled Kingdom and Empires. We are in week number five, and today my message is entitled The Greatest and the Least. Now, in this series, we've said that the Gospels talk about the incarnation of the eternal Son as a means of introducing the arrival of the kingdom of God that necessitated the, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the high priestly reign of Jesus. In other words, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus are connected. They're interlinked. Many of us think that the reason the Son of God appeared was to die on a cross so that you and I would be given this free pass into heaven when we die. But we've said through this series, it's more than that. The life of Jesus and the death of Jesus are connected in introducing the arrival of the kingdom of God that, yes, affects us, but it affects the whole world as well. And so in week number two, Brad taught a message, many of you will remember this, talking about how all of the scriptures are interweaved in with this one idea of God restoring all things, that the shalom that was shattered in the garden is through the work of Jesus Christ being restored once and for all. And so through this series, we've talked about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we've said that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is basically the rule and the reign of God advancing here on earth, bringing wholeness and bringing healing. And so what I want to do today is pick up, basically, where Brad left off last week in Matthew chapter 11. Now, if you need a copy of the Scriptures, uh, please raise your hands in the air, and our ushers will be glad to loan you a copy, and then you'll be able to follow along with us. But we're going to continue today with the teaching from Matthew chapter 11 in this message entitled, The Greatest and the Least. Again, if you need a copy of the Scriptures, raise your hands in the air. Now, let me just uh, kind of recap what Brad shared last week. And Brad shared from Matthew chapter 11 how John was imprisoned. This is not where John expected to be. This is not what John expected the kingdom of heaven arriving to do. John expected something different. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus, not to question Jesus' messianic identity, but to question the messianic agenda. Jesus, this isn't going the way that I thought it would go. So tell me, are you the one, or do we need to wait for someone else? Because my understanding of what the kingdom does is very different to me finding myself locked up in prison, standing on tiptoes trying to catch some daylight. Jesus hears the question, and he responds to the disciples of John by saying, listen, go back to John and tell him everything that you've seen. Tell him that the blind are able to see, the deaf are able to hear, the lame are able to walk, the demonized are being set free. 
Now, Brad told us last week that this is basically a restatement of the messianic agenda in Luke chapter 4 with one thing missing, the release of captives. Where was John? In prison. What was the kingdom going to do? Release the captives. And so what we have here then is John being the first person, but by no means the last person, to wrestle with the reality of the kingdoms now and more to come. You see, John wanted more than what Jesus was able to offer him now. John was troubled. Verse 6, Jesus says to John's disciples, Blessed is the man who doesn't stumble on account of me. I wonder how many of you are here today, and, and basically you find yourself imprisoned in some court sort of trial, and this is not where you expected yourself to be. If the kingdom has fully come, you think, then surely there should be more to it than this. Surely bad things shouldn't happen to good people. Well, if that's where you are, then basically you can identify with John because John is the first person to wrestle with this reality. But what we're about to read here is that John has struggled essentially with Jesus' desire to free others while leaving him, who Jesus is about to say, the greatest man born of a woman in chains. So this is the context. The kingdom is forcefully advancing, John, but maybe not in the way that you would expect, and maybe not doing for you what you would like God to do for you. Are you going to be okay with that, John? And then this is where the story picks up. In chapter 11, and we're going to read from verse 7 through the end of verse 10. As John's disciples were leaving... Jesus began to, the, to speak to the crowd about John. You know what I love about this? This kingdom conversation was happening in public. A lot of the teachings that Jesus does in Matthew's gospel are actually for the disciples' ears only. But this debate was actually done in public. So Jesus turns to the crowd, and he talks to the crowd about John. Now look at what he says. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now, stop there. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is talking to the crowds. John, disciples have left. Jesus is talking to the crowds and he's saying, this guy is an incredible guy. Indeed, that, that, that's part of John's problem, you see. John knows that he's a pretty special guy. Not in some kind of arrogant way, but, but John, according to the Scriptures, is someone who actually knows that he was sent from God. John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God who came to witness to the light. He himself was not the light, even though many people thought that he was. John knew that he was a man sent from God, and as a man sent from God on a mission to prepare the way for the Messiah, then surely he shouldn't be locked up in chains. John is a pretty special guy. 
Secondly, the Bible tells us that John is a special guy because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, big deal with that, you may think. But there's something special about John being filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at this text. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Big deal. Look at this. Even before he is born. Wow. It's something for someone to be filled with the Spirit after they are born and while they live. It's quite something else to be filled with the Spirit even before you were born. John was truly a great guy. There's an interesting story that we read in the Gospels in the, about the early life. Well, actually, the pre-birth life of both John and Jesus. It's the story where Mary finds out she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, goes to Elizabeth who is John the Baptist's mother. And you remember the story that as Mary is running towards Elizabeth, Elizabeth then says, wow, you're pregnant, aren't you? And how did she know? Because the baby inside my womb leapt. John, you see, was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. And this spiritual sight enabled him to recognize who Jesus was. He didn't see with the eyes of his head. He saw with the eyes of faith. This is a pretty special guy. You see, when John is standing there baptizing people and he sees Jesus coming, he recognizes through the Spirit that this is the Messiah, not because they were cousins. They hadn't seen one another for years. John had grown a little bit of hair, and I'm sure Jesus had as well. John was a special guy. He was great because he was called by God. He was great because unlike any other person that ever lived... He was actually filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Now, Jesus was exactly the same. It was the Spirit of God that triggered the flesh with which the eternal Son was clothed as a man. These guys are great guys. Hopefully, you're beginning to understand John's struggle here. Uh, thirdly, the, the Scriptures tell us that John was a man whose ministry bore much fruit. And there John is locked up in prison thinking, there could be so much more fruit that I could actually bring to bear if you would just get me out of here, Jesus. And the Scriptures again say this, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was a great guy. And this great guy was locked up in prison. And the disciples of John have turned away, and Jesus just emphasizes John's greatness. And the question comes again, if the kingdom really is forcefully advancing, then why do great people get locked up? Why does this happen? Now, who does he address this to? Again, look at verse 7. He addresses this to the crowds. He wants the crowds to know that they truly have been in the presence of greatness. Have you ever spent any time around a spiritual great? Through my life, there have been a number of people who have influenced me deeply, but there are two people who I believe to be spiritual greats. This is one of them, a guy by the name of Les Isaacs. Les is an Antiguan native who moved to London, England, while he was young. While in London, he quickly got into gangs, 
developed behaviors that were troubling to his parents, got involved in, in violence and drugs, entered into the Rastafarian religion, believing that would bring him hope and life that he craved. But it didn't. And one night he was sitting at home, reflecting on his life, and God appeared to him in a vision. He gave his heart to Jesus Christ, and God led him to, to a ministry in a part of London that was dynamic. And I was introduced to Les at the tender age of 16 by my Scottish pastor who believed that it would be really important for my development for me to go to Les's church in London and to work out that the way God works in the world is very different to what we're typically accustomed in the church to seeing. And so I went to London. You may have remembered me telling the story of how I was the only white guy in a black church. That's Les's church. And I remember spending time with Les, seeing what God was doing, being around him thinking, if I could only have a fraction of the anointing that this guy's got. In 2003, Les began to get troubled, disturbed by what was happening in the major cities and towns around the United Kingdom and believed that the hope that people needed was actually found in Christ and Christ was in the Christian. And so he started something called Street Pastors, a movement designed to take the Christian and the Christ to the streets at the most important time of need. And so in 2003, 17 people took to the streets on a Friday night between 10 o'clock in the evening and 4 o'clock in the morning, did the same thing on a Saturday just as people were getting out of the pubs and the clubs, and they decided to be the pastors on the street. What started in a humble way with 17 people in a back street town has now spread across the entire world where even in the UK alone, 20,000 Christians every week are involved in taking Christ to the street at the time when many of us wouldn't dare go out. This ministry has so revolutionized London and uh, the United Kingdom that Les has won a number of awards, including being awarded the OBE, the Order of the British Empire by the Queen. Have you ever been in the presence of a spiritual great? If you have, what does it make you think? Jesus is addressing these words to the crowds. He is saying, listen, I tell you, this guy is a great guy. What do you think the crowds are thinking in that moment? Probably exactly the same as I was thinking whenever I was in the presence of Les Isaacs. I would say, God, just give me a fraction, just a fraction of the anointing that you've given this guy. Kind of like Elisha to Elijah. God, just give me that anointing. Now, what's interesting about this is, is what we read in verse 11. Have a look at verse 11 of Matthew 11. He's just talked about John's greatness. The crowds have, have come to the realization, truly they were in the presence of greatness. There has been awe, there is awoken in all of them. And then we read this, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Okay, that part is great. Yet... Whoever 
is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. They didn't expect that, did they? Whoever is greater in the kingdom, at least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. Jesus, did we hear you right? Jesus has just said a couple of interesting things there, isn't he? Firstly, he said, John is the greatest person ever born of a woman. The greatest person, greater than Abraham, father of the nation. Greater than Moses, the person who introduced them to God's teachings to live life to the full. Greater than David, the greatest king that had ever lived. Greater than all of these people, Jesus says, is John the Baptist. What's interesting about this is what we're reading in John chapter 10. We read this. Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign. Stop there, please. Some of you may well have heard me talk about Les Isaacs being a true spiritual great and wonder whether spiritual greatness actually involves more than cleaning up the vomit of someone who's drunk. You may well have wondered whether it's more than actually helping someone get home when they can't get themselves home. You may well have thought that to be considered a spiritual great, there needs to be some miracle you need to perform to be canonized with the saints. Well, if that's the case, look at this. What do you do with this? John was great, and yet there was not a single wonder that he performed. Well, if John truly is the greatest person ever to have been born of a woman, Jesus said, and this greatness is not dependent upon miracles, then what does it mean to be a spiritual great in Jesus' eyes? You see, we've got so many false ideas of what spiritual greatness is according to Jesus, but Jesus makes it pretty clear. And in fact, this verse makes it pretty clear, doesn't he? Though John never performed a sign, what did he do? Everything that John said about this man was true. That's why he's great. Because he pointed people to Jesus. See? John was a great man. But the least in the kingdom are greater than John. And greatness isn't dependent upon wonders. It's dependent upon a witness about Jesus through actually being with Jesus and with people. That's why John is great. Now, I hope you notice there's a comparison going on here. There's a comparison going on, firstly, between John and everyone else who's ever lived. And then secondly, there's a comparison going on between John and everyone who is in the kingdom, who considers themselves to be the least in the kingdom. Let me help you understand this. This comparison demands that something is going to happen that enables, A, people to enter the kingdom, and secondly, people to have people will have to wrestle with their greatness in that kingdom. Something is going to happen. What is about to happen? It's the cross. From Matthew chapter 11 onwards, 
the opposition and the skepticism to Jesus increases. No longer are people going to be as fanatical about him as increasingly they understand that his kingdom agenda is not what the Jewish nation wanted. They wanted liberation. They wanted it now. But God said, that's not the way it's going to be. And so the whole move in Matthew's gospel is towards the cross. It's towards Jerusalem. So the contrast here between John and the least is actually based around a position in salvation history. You see, John stands the other side of the cross to us. John stands before Jesus gets to the cross, and Jesus says John's greatness is not due to anything other than the fact that he can point to me more clearly than anyone who has ever lived. More clearly than Abraham, who we read in Hebrews look forward to this day. More clearly than Moses. More clearly than David. Even though Jesus was called the son of David, there was John. And this John was able to point to Jesus more clearly than ever, anyone who had ever lived. That, Jesus says, makes him great. And this greatness was not dependent upon any wonders that he performed, but simply on the fact that everything that he said about Jesus was true. Simply upon the fact that he was willing to speak the truth about Jesus, even though it got him locked up. Well, if this comparison that is made is true, then the least in the kingdom has to refer to a certain event that's going to come that the least in the kingdom now find themselves the other side of. Jesus says the greatness of the least in the kingdom is possible not because the least perform any wonders of note, but simply because they can point to me more clearly than John ever could. How is that possible? How is it possible for people to point so clearly to Jesus without performing a wonder? The answer? By telling people about Jesus, by pointing people to Jesus. Greatness in the kingdom simply refers to the willingness of a person to point people to Jesus. Last week I was in Southeast Asia, and last Sunday at this time I was worshiping with a church led by Pastor Sandy. Pastor Sandy began this church a number of years ago with 17 people. It meets in a fundamentalist Islamic part of Jakarta. The church have had to relocate a number of times as the building has been stormed, as the police crack down on the, on the growth of the church and actually try to divide the church. But to divide the meeting place of the body of faith actually results in multiplication. And so it's grown. When I first went to Sandy's church a number of years ago, there were 30 people. Last Sunday I was there, and there must have been 130, 150 people there. There were so many children in there that they couldn't even sit. How is this possible? This guy in my eyes is a spiritual great, and do you know what makes him a spiritual great? It's just listening to his story. 
You see, Sandy wasn't born in a Christian home. He was born into an Islamic family. And through poverty and bad choices, found himself addicted to drugs. And through this addiction, he actually contracted HIV. He lives with HIV. In that moment, he wrestled with his own existence. He wrestled with the faith he heard, discovered Christ, and was the first in his family to convert to Christianity. Today, Sandy will baptize, I think it's the fifth member of his family, his brother, to come to Christ. See, Sandy has been dealt a lot in life, like John, that he could have stepped back from and said, this isn't fair, acted like a victim, but he didn't. He pressed in. He pressed in to search for the hope and life that everyone finds through Jesus, and he found it, and it transformed him, and it continues to transform that entire region where God has placed him. Greatness, Sandy has discovered, is found in simply pointing people to Jesus. Pointing people to Jesus. Again, for this contrast to work between the greatest John and the least in the kingdom, something has to happen to allow the least to enter the kingdom. But what? Throughout this series, I've said that the, the Gospels introduce the incarnation of the eternal Son in order to speak of the arrival of the kingdom of God that necessitated the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the high priestly reign of Jesus. They're connected. Matthew's gospel is incredible in the fact that it actually brings this together in a way that makes so much sense. The event that enables the contrast to work is the death of Jesus on the cross. And Matthew actually weaves in the miracle stories, these wonders, this kingdom agenda, into the very reason why Jesus must be put to death in the way that many of the other gospels don't. For example, look at this text, Matthew chapter 21. This is the section where Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem and he's clearing the temple. But look at this text with me. Jesus entered the temple courts, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then look at this. Then the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Commentators debate about where these lame and the blind went. Was it in the outer court? Was it in the court of the Gentiles? You see, if you had a problem, if you were blind, if you were lame, if there was some obvious sin, as they would call it, in your life, then there were certain parts of the temple that you were restricted from going to. You see, only healthy people could go in, not broken people not sick people, not hurting people, not depressed people, not dirty people, just clean people. But what does Jesus do? Jesus drives out all of the religious people, and in that moment, who do you think comes in? The very people who A, weren't allowed, and B, wouldn't be seen dead in a religious place like that, are so touched by Jesus that they are the ones who run in. 
And the rest of the story goes on to say that these religious leaders, Supreme Court leaders, were actually indignant and angry. And they come to him and they say, by what authority do you do these things? What things? Driving out the money changes from the temple is the first one. And the second one is invite people into this place who have no right to be here. And what does Jesus do? He heals them right there. There's another verse that we're probably familiar with, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew groups most of his miracles into Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. And and there in Matthew chapter 8, we read this verse, or these verses. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Now look at this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. This has led to a conversation in evangelical circles about whether there is healing in the atonement. Does the very fact that Jesus died on the cross and the verses that are attributed to him dying on the cross, Isaiah 55, speak of all of this. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was punished for our sin. Does the very fact that Matthew uses these verses in the healing ministry of Jesus mean it's a right for every one of us to expect healing right here, right now? There are streams of the church that say that. Well, here's the reality. Many ask whether there's healing in the atonement, but the question misses the point entirely. The cross is central to Matthew's unfolding of the kingdom, and consequently, the kingdom is central to the meaning we have to give to the cross. In other words, the cross is about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The cross is about the world, not just us. It's about the world. And through the miracles that Jesus performs, he announces that the kingdom of God is breaking in, in power. And yes, there will be aspects to the kingdom being, kingdom coming on earth that won't meet our expectations, just like it didn't meet John's, just like it didn't meet Sandy's. But the real question is, what are we going to do when God's will isn't ours? Are we willing to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? The kingdom agenda is about God's agenda for the world, not just us. And if we're in here today, we're at least in the kingdom. But the good news is the least are greater than the greatest when we recognize that we're here for one task, point people to Jesus. The church exists for one task, point people to Jesus. We should come into the church for one reason, to be inspired to recognize that our responsibility is to point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Point people to the cross. We are great, not because of anything we've done, but for some reason, God has placed us this side of the cross. And because we're this side of the cross, we know how the story ends. John didn't. John didn't see it. John didn't grasp it. John didn't know it. We do. And the question is, what will we do? Let me help you understand what is truly going on here. In this conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders, as they say to him, what right have you got to do all of these things in here, this sacred place? Well, the ancients believed, as we've unpacked in this series, that you have heaven, Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. 
heaven, God wants to come on earth. And in order for that to happen, the ancients believed that there were, there were kind of sacred spaces, sacred places that bridged the gap between heaven and earth. So in the first part of the Old Testament, we realize that gap is being bridged through the tabernacle. God was everywhere, but there was a special place. And in this special place, we got a glimpse, the glory of God in a, in a small way. We saw that through the, the pillar of fire at night and the cloud Heaven and earth were bridged through the tabernacle. Later on, we would realize that the heavens and the earth were bridged through the temple. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus says, now, from here on in, the heavens and the earth are bridged by me. This is the context for John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The context is not the temple, not the tabernacle, not the righteous things we'll do, but simply the cross. See, if Jesus' life truly was to recreate the message and the life and the experience of Israel, then anybody who spent any time in the Old Testament realize, would realize that Israel suffered. God's people suffered. Read the Psalms. Read the book of Isaiah. And in reliving their experience, Jesus suffered also. But what God's people never realized in the Old Testament, Jesus did, that this suffering was going to be a vehicle for bridging the gap between heaven and earth. Many of us think the reason that Jesus was put to death on a cross was because people did not understand him. If they would have understood him, we think, then they would never have done that. But no. Jesus was put to death because we think Jesus was not put to death because they didn't understand him, but because they understood him only too well. They understood Jesus to be offering a means of access to God that bypassed the temple and went simply through him. Who gave you the authority to do these things? God did. Because it is in God's perfect will and plan that I bridged the gap between heaven and earth through my own body. Jesus bridges the gap between heaven and earth. And do you know what this means? This means that everybody who's understood this, everybody who has done what Romans 10, 9 tells us to do, to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, now becomes a member, not of the United States of, of America, but actually a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In that moment, there's a transferal of ownership. We become God's people. And in that moment, we become kingdom citizens. And what is Jesus saying? Through the cross and the ability to recognize what is happening in the cross, we have the right to be called the children of God. And John says in his letter, and that is what we are. And so we recognize then that in this day and age, through the cross, everybody who recognizes who Jesus is actually themselves becomes the bridge 
between heaven and earth. Think about these scriptures. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You know what that means? Heaven and earth is bridged through you. But Craig, do do you really know who I am? Do you really know what I wrestle with? No, I don't know all of that. God does. But he says this. I tell you what, because of your position in salvation history, because you know how this story ends, you are great. Another scripture. Some of these you should be familiar with. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Of all of the men born of a woman, none is greater than John. But I tell you this, Jesus says, the least in the kingdom. Those who have understood what happened on the cross, those people are greater than John. Why? What does God expect of us in the kingdom? Because that really is the question, isn't it? I I think that there's two things that God expects of us. Just from Matthew 11 alone. Firstly, we need to recognize who we are. We're children of God. We may be little and insignificant. We may think that we don't add up to much. But God thinks we're great. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. Craig, don't you know what I struggle with? Quite honestly, it doesn't matter what you struggle with. What matters is what you do with your struggle. John struggled. Sandy struggled. But what did they do? They didn't step back and feel betrayed. They didn't act like a victim and say, God, I'll never get close to you again. No, they pressed in. They pushed on. They pressed through. Why? Because that's what children of God do. We never allow a momentary struggle or a weakness from, to stop us from pointing people to Jesus. That's just what we do. Secondly, we recognize that that's exactly what we're called to do. Point people to Jesus. Because in Jesus, the gap between heaven and earth is bridged Chaos is pushed out. Life and hope move in. Last week, not only did we go to Manila, we also spent some time in, and not only did we go to Jakarta, we also spent some time in Manila. We went here. It looks like a a pretty ordinary place, and quite honestly, it is. This is a corner of a a certain section in Manila that uh, Pastor Greg Lyons found himself in a number of years ago. Greg is an American, son of an American missionary who was ministering in the Philippines. And uh, Greg grew up there, was called into ministry, and uh, basically continued to minister in the Philippines. He was pastor of a small but growing church that needed to relocate, and uh, one day the, the only property that became available to him was just behind where I'm taking this photograph. Greg says that's not where he wanted to be. He didn't want to be there. 
He tells the story of how he would go out on that corner, just looking where I'm taking this photograph right now, and look around and say, God, why on earth have you placed me here? This is not where I want to be. He was frustrated. But rather than back off, he decided to wrestle this frustration through, and so he decided to prayer walk just around the, the vicinity of where this new uh, where the church would be located. And, and as you look at that picture, can you see the trees? Those trees actually mark out the property of the largest high school in the world. 42,000 high school students. And as Greg is prayer walking, his frustration saying, God, why have you got me here? Initially, he never saw the school. He just saw his own frustration. He dealt with his own frustration. And as he continued to wrestle this through, slowly his head began to lift as he communicated with God. And, and all of a sudden, he starts to see the school. And God starts to speak to his heart and say, Greg, do you realize that I've got you here for a reason? Can you take your eyes off yourself and consider what that must be? Okay, God, you, you've got me here for a reason. I'm not out of your will. I'm where you want me to be, so what do you want me to do? Greg, I want you to reach that school. Oh, God, how am I going to do that? Wrestled it through. God spoke to him. Why don't you do a camp? That's a novel idea, right? A camp. Started with 150. But last Thursday evening, we were there again. And there is about 2,000 people there. It's Dr. Robert Vliestra from our church that uh, came over with us. And there we are looking out at 2,000 people. 90% of the audience at the top that you're looking at do not know Jesus. 120 camps this year alone has happened in that place. 125,000 people have heard the gospel being proclaimed. 25,000 of them have come to know Jesus. 8,000 of them have been baptized. 3,000 of them have actually gone into seminary. And 30 new churches have been planted in one of the mega cities of the world. And it all began because one guy, Pastor Greg Lines, wasn't content to stand there and say, God, this isn't fair, but was willing to push through what he felt and say, God, you got me here for a reason. The picture you see underneath, those are the people who came to Christ on Thursday evening, 742, 742. What's interesting with this camp is this camp is actually for the teachers. You see, the mayor of Manila became aware of what was happening in these camps through the changes that were happening in the school as a result of all of these high school students coming to Christ. And so she goes to Pastor Greg and says, Greg, can you do me a favor? Could you do whatever you're doing for the high school students for our teachers, please? He looked at them and said, what? You know, separation of church and state and all? What do you want me to do? I want you to do whatever you're doing for the students 
for the teachers, please. <laughs> Let me get this right. You want me to do the same thing? Sure. Well, you did the same thing. When I was there three years ago, I shared the gospel to a couple of thousand high school teachers. 800 of them came to Christ. Manila is being transformed. Why? Because one guy was willing to actually say, God, I'm in a situation that I don't want to be in, but I know you've got me here for a reason, and I really believe that the kingdom of God advances, not necessarily through the wonders that we will do, but for the witness that we will give in pointing people to Jesus. That's how it works. 742. It goes on from there. The teachers are now getting transformed. The students are getting transformed. Mary Manila comes back. Do you think you can do something with the parents? There's no point. Yeah, right? <laughs> There's no point getting the teachers kind of all set in the right place and the students all set in the right place if really the homes are all messed up. So do you think you can actually do some work with the parents for us, please? This ministry has reached... Over a million people for Christ. Now, that seems massive, and it is, but that's a small fraction of the size of that city. But again, how does the kingdom advance? Brad talked about this last week. We expect the kingdom to advance, and we want the kingdom to advance in hammer-like blows, but the reality is it advances like a mustard seed. It advances when a person decides to make a simple decision and walk in the right direction. Wasn't that last week's message? This is the way the kingdom advances. It advances in power from insignificant beginnings, not necessarily miraculous, but by a willingness to bear witness to Jesus. That's what we are here for, to bear witness to Jesus. And you know what my hope, my goal, my motivation is? For a glimpse of what is happening in Manila, in Jakarta, to happen here in Holland. And that can happen as you and I go out of the doors of the church and recognize we are here to bear witness to Jesus. That we are great. And that greatness is based on one simple fact. Not what we've done, but what God has done and placing us this side of the cross where we know how the story ends, and by then saying, God, yes, I don't like some of the experiences that I'm going through. But like John the Baptist, like Pastor Sandy, like Pastor Greg, I'm not going to shrink back and live defeated. I'm going to press into you until you reveal to me what it is that you want me to do, how it is that you want me to point people to Jesus. Church, we're here for a kingdom agenda, and that kingdom agenda is really simple, point people to Jesus, because in Jesus, there truly is the hope and life that we all crave, and it's our willingness to point people to Jesus that makes us great. My encouragement today Go out and live as the child of God that you are and point people to Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that what you have done for us in demonstrating your great love, in sending Jesus Christ to die for us, 
was for more than us. It was for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. Father, we thank you for what we personally have received. But today, Father, we just pray that your spirit would move on our hearts and remind us that it's not about us. It's about your kingdom coming to earth. Your will being done on earth just as it is in heaven. Bringing healing, bringing wholeness, bringing hope, bringing life. And you have called us, Father, to be the hands and feet of Jesus because we, as your people, indwelt by your spirit, do bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And so, Father, today we pray that as we leave this place, we will bring a touch of heaven wherever we go and to whomever we meet. In Jesus' name. God's people said? Amen. Amen. Church, go be the hands and feet of Jesus. Have a great week. God bless, and we'll see you next week.